you this morning for the first time, actually. It's great to be back in the old stomping grounds uh, where we used to live and where a great many members of Covenant Fellowship used to live as well, and many still do uh, as, I, as I look out among you. Uh, Andy shared a bit of our history and... Uh, I'm just struck by how God takes our weak and feeble efforts and multiplies them in ways that we could never have imagined. Don't think for a second that what you're doing for Christ is small. You have no idea what it's going to look like 30 years from now or 100 years from now. God will multiply your labors. For his glory. It's also nice to sing out of a hymnal. I don't think I've done that since my uncle's funeral many years ago. And, uh, and then, of course, that was the way we always sang. And as I was singing uh, here this morning, I couldn't help but remember being a boy and listening to my dad uh, belt out hymns as we held that hymnal together. Grateful for a godly heritage. Uh, Andy mentioned that, uh, that we're talking about the unborn today, specifically the title of the sermon is The Image of God and the Unborn, and if you have your Bibles or an app on your phone, uh, Jeremiah chapter 8 is where we will be springing from. This sermon was originally given as part of a larger series on the image of God. I don't think there's any doctrine that we could study that would have more relevance to the issues facing us uh, in our world today. Uh, Jared began the series talking about the image of God per se and, and what does it mean. I don't have time to unpack that for you. What does it mean when the Bible says we've been created in the image of God? Like, like what is that saying? Jared devoted a whole service to that, a whole sermon, created with dignity. And then he also spoke on the image of God and self-image. How does the fact that we've been made in the image of God affect the way we ought to perceive ourselves? And that has broad-ranging implications for people who tend to despise themselves or harm themselves. We talked about the image of God and relationships and respect, which has everything to do with how we talk and how we post on Facebook. And then I delivered the sermon you'll hear this morning, The Image of God and the Unborn. Joel Gaines, who I understand has been coming here, uh, Joel uh, gave a wonderful sermon called One New Man on the Image of God and Race. Then Doug Hayes talked about the image of God and the poor. Jared came back and talked about the image of God and those with special needs. And then Rob Flood wrapped up the series speaking about the image of God and gender equality. So there's really no, no uh, theological topic that we might study which could be more relevant to the issues facing us today. Let's open with prayer. Lord, we thank you this morning that there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. Lord, we thank you that sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. 
Lord, we're in need this morning of that cleansing flood. And even as we talk about this issue, Father, we rejoice that all our sins are washed away. Lord, you've made every human being in your holy image, so help us treat the poor and the disadvantaged with respect and dignity and an open hand. Father, help us to treat people of every race with righteousness and rectitude and respect. And Lord, help us to receive the unborn with gratitude. Help us to protect them with zeal and care for them with love. Oh Lord, amen. Dr. Tony Levitino, a former abortion doctor, described how a D&E abortion, dilate and evacuate abortion procedure is conducted. He says, a D&E abortion is a blind procedure. The baby can be in any orientation or position inside the uterus. Picture yourself reaching in with the sofa clamp and grasping anything you can. And once you've grasped something inside, squeeze on the clamp to set the jaws and pull hard, really hard. You feel something let go and out pops a fully formed leg about four to five inches long. Reach in again and grasp whatever you can. Set the jaw again and pull really hard once again and out pops an arm about the same length. Reach in again and again with that clamp and tear out the spine, the intestines, the heart, and the lungs. The French Revolution, which sought to liberate France from Christianity, had its bloody guillotine. And the sexual revolution of our age, which seeks to liberate the West from Christian morals, has its bloody sofa clamps and its bloody embryonic decapitating scissors. And both cultures considered themselves respectable. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. But when the darkness of the work of abortion was exposed a year and a half ago by a series of heartbreaking videos, those who did the exposing were hauled into court. And the electorate rejected every presidential candidate who'd consistently stood for the lives of the unborn. Children. Children made in the beautiful image and likeness of God. How shall we respond? How shall we respond? 
what are Christians supposed to do? How are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to feel? Well, how did Jeremiah respond when faced with similar sins in Israel in his day? I want to read how Jeremiah responded. And I'd like you to read it with me. Jeremiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. We're going to see how he responded to the rampant fornication, adultery, lust, and idolatry of the Israel of his day. We're going to see how he responded to the killing of innocent children which sprang from that idolatry, which sprang from that idol worship. We're going to see how he responded to the prospect of God's coming judgment upon the nation for those sins. Let's read, beginning in verse 18. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. And then he asks a broken-hearted question. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. How did Jeremiah respond? Let's consider different clauses which we've just read. He says... My joy is gone, and grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Jeremiah was grief-stricken at the sins and the suffering of his people. He was overwhelmed with sorrow at the judgment of God which was on its way. I think our situation is not unlike his. Our world, and not just our country, our world has abandoned the true and living God. Our world worships and serves created things. Our world has made idols, not of wood and stone, but of personal dreams, of ambitions, of money, of ease, of sexual liberty, and of convenience. He lived in an idolatrous world, and so do we. And his heart was broken. Our world sacrifices its children at the altar of its idols. And so did they. 
When we see unborn children bearing the likeness of God killed by abortion, the godly response is not to shake our fists and, and shout. The godly response is to be stricken with dismay and grief. And that's because the unborn are not just a lump of flesh as our world teaches us. Like us, they are lumps of flesh stamped with God's own likeness and image. And God has placed a holy and severe boundary against killing innocent people. Read it in Genesis 9. You don't kill innocent people who are made in His image. And that's the reasoning behind the prohibition against murder. For they're made in the image of God. We see that boundary erected by God from the beginning right there in Genesis. But not only in Genesis 9, we see it in the law of Moses, which Jeremiah's contemporaries ignored. Let's read Moses for a second. Moses tells the people of Israel after that great deliverance out of Egypt. He said, when you come into the land, Deuteronomy 12, I think we have it. Deuteronomy 12. When you come into the land and see the people around you, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. When we get to the book of Jeremiah, which I read through a number of times in preparation for this sermon, I was struck. Three times the Lord expresses great displeasure at the idolatry and the related child sacrifices which were practiced in, of all places, Israel. In the nation of God's people, they were sacrificing their children in the fire to their gods. Three times. The Lord laments through Jeremiah that his people are doing this. Let me just read one of them. Jeremiah 19, verses 4 to 5. They have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. All three times when the Lord laments through Jeremiah that they're doing this, he, say, he repeats that phrase, nor did it come into my mind. Now that's not a denial of God's omniscience. He knows everything. He sees everything. What it's saying is, is that what they're doing is unthinkable to him. It didn't come into my mind. I would have never dreamed that you would worship this way. All three times that child sacrifice is mentioned, 
God says it did not come into my mind. When God finally judged his own people, so they're sinning. They're, they're worshiping idols. They're not following him. It got worse and worse. If you want to read about that, you read the book of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And you see how their how their uh, how the downgrade got steeper and steeper until finally God removed them from the land. And when he finally judged his own people, and they're now in exile in a foreign country, he reminded them through Ezekiel, the prophet during that time, how they got there. You took, we've got it, Ezekiel 16, you took your sons and your daughters, and these you sacrificed. Were your harlotries? So small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering? Wasn't your adultery bad enough? You're killing my children too? The idolatry in Jeremiah's world led his people to conclude that the killing of children was a sad and unfortunate necessity for human flourishing. You think, why did they do that? They were afraid if they didn't, that they wouldn't have a crop, that they wouldn't prosper. This is what everybody around them believed. You have to sacrifice to these fertility gods in order for the land to produce a harvest. So you're going to not prosper if you don't sacrifice your children. And I want to submit to you that our idolatry runs along the same lines. You can't keep this child. What about your future? You're not going to prosper. So they were saying, just like people today say, hey, I don't want to do this. I don't like this. But we have to or we won't prosper. The idolatry of our world leads people to conclude that the killing of children is a sad and unfortunate necessity for human flourishing. It's, it was fear-driven for the people of Israel and it's fear-driven for people today, and not just in the United States. I just read this morning that in China, sons are regarded as necessary for prosperity and daughters lead to poverty. So they, they, they have had historically massive amounts of female infanticide, and today the big problem is sex-selective abortion in China. So that the problem now is they have 50 million more men than they have women because of sex-selective abortions. So they have made, China has made, if the report I read this morning is accurate, I have no reason to think that it isn't, that they have made sonograms illegal. And there's a huge flourishing underground for sonograms so that people can find out if it's a girl so they can have an abortion. This problem is not limited to the United States. But again, it's fear-driven. We won't prosper if we keep this baby. But the killing of innocent human beings never brings flourishing to any culture or any nation. It always brings a vicious cycle of reaping, which is what the Chinese are finding out, which pulls the culture deeper and deeper into the very things that destroy human flourishing. So, Jeremiah's joy 
is gone, grief is upon him, his heart is sick within him. Then he says in verse 20, the harvest is past and the summer is ended and we're not saved. What does he mean by this? What's he talking about? Well, he is grieving that the sins of the nation had been going on for a long time. When the summer and the harvest are past, the year is drawing to a close. The autumn winds have begun to blow. The chill of judgment is in the air. And the cold storms of winter are soon to be upon them. Figuratively speaking, it means that it's getting late to repent. In our country, 44 years since Roe versus Wade. And to this day, I just read January 3rd, somebody conducted a poll, 7 in 10 Americans do not want Roe versus Wade repealed. 7 in 10. So our problem is not just the law. It's the hearts of the people. It's our hearts. So this is, this is part of his, Jeremiah's lament. We're still not saved. This has been going on for a long time. And then in verse 21, he says, For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. It was for the wound of his people that he was wounded. And I think this is interesting. I think as Christians, this is the posture we need to adopt. It was for the sin and miseries that the people around him had brought upon themselves and their children that he mourned deeply. Notice he didn't put the nation's sins out of his mind. He allowed himself to feel the weight and the grief of those sins and the cruel harvest of suffering which the wages of those sins were bringing. So we should ask ourselves this morning, I think, are we wounded with the wounds of the daughter of our people? Do we grieve for a world that continues to deny that man is created by God? Are we wounded and weeping because the world continues to reject the salvation which God has provided mankind on the cross? Are we wounded at a culture which continues to forsake Jesus, the spring of living water, and chooses again to use Jeremiah's language to dig cisterns for themselves, cisterns that cannot hold water. Do we mourn with Jeremiah for the innocent children who die violent and unjust deaths? Not in the fires of Moloch, but in clinics where they're quite literally torn limb from limb. Jeremiah allows his heart to be wounded with grief for his culture's wounds. And then utterly sick with sorrow. Seeing and feeling the depths to which his people have fallen, he cries out. I mean, try try and understand what the man is going through. He cries out in despair. Is there no balm in Gilead? Now, Gilead was like the pharmaceutical center of the ancient Near East. That's where the medicines came from. Is there there no balm in Gilead? Is there no medicine to heal this disease? Jeremiah is basically asking, are we terminal? Are we history? 
Is there no physician who can help us? Is there no healing for my people? Are we past healing? Is there no balm in Gilead to heal our sin-sick land? And then quite overwhelmed with tears, we read it together. Oh, that my head were waters. I mean, he wants... It's not enough for tears to come out of just his eyes. He wants his whole head to be a fountain of tears. That I might weep day and night for the slain of my people. Jeremiah here is weeping, but he's wishing he could weep more. Isn't that the way you feel? I mean, we're sorrowful, but we want to be more sorrowful. Tears are flowing from Jeremiah's eyes, but too few of them. He wishes his eyes were like a fountain and his whole head like a river. Jeremiah here weeps, not just for the innocent slain, and this is important for us to understand, he weeps for the guilty slain. Those who are coming under the judgment of God. He's weeping not just for the innocent, but for the guilty. He's not just weeping for the children who were killed. He's weeping for those who sacrificed them, believing that it would do them good. He longs for a balm from Gilead. Matthew Henry's commentary, one of the most devotional commentaries, very old, but one of my favorites, he says this, He says, when the nation's heart is a fountain of sin, the church's eyes should be a fountain of tears. The miseries of our country ought to be very much the grief of our souls. A gracious spirit should be a public spirit, a tender spirit, a mourning spirit. It becomes us to lament the miseries of our fellow creatures and lay to heart the calamities of our country. When the nation's heart is a fountain of sin, the church's eyes should be a fountain of tears. I know from your Facebook posts, many of you, that when the videos came out which portrayed the violence done to the unborn, you looked away and shed tears. I I remember when those Videos were being posted on Facebook. How many comments from many of you? Just one word. Tears. Tears. I'd like now to to turn a little bit. Let's, Let's flip back a few pages to Jeremiah 1 because I just want to address how God views the unborn. And I'd like to use Jeremiah as a foil for that. If we look at the call of Jeremiah, we see some very interesting things about how God views the unborn. And let's just review this briefly. Jeremiah chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 5. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's clear that God has intimate knowledge of the little unborn Jeremiah. 
There's Jeremiah. Little Jeremiah in the womb. And, and God says, I know you. I know you, Jeremiah. So the theology that we can derive from this, it's clear not just here but throughout the Scriptures, is that God knows the unborn. We can't see them. We can't see their little hands, their little eyes, their little feet. But He does, and He knows them. And He doesn't just know them as a blob. He knows that he, he knew Jeremiah as Jeremiah. This is a person known by God. Next he says, while I was forming you, I consecrated you. So God's forming him and he consecrates him. That means he sets him apart. He gives him a unique destiny. Little Jeremiah is filled with potential to fulfill a God-given destiny. It's clear here that God has foreordained purposes for little Jeremiah. So God, the theology that we drive from that is that God consecrates the unborn to His divine plan, to His sovereign plan, whatever it may be for that life. It also says that he formed baby Jeremiah in the womb. So here it's clear that God is actively at work making Jeremiah. Yes, there was a natural process at work in the baby's development. But that natural process was under God's full control. It was under God's full supervision. It was according to God's sovereign plan. I formed you in the womb. So the unborn are not just biological accidents. Everything about them is God's handiwork. The exact cells which come together from the father and mother are chosen by God. Every personality trait they inherit is ordered by God. Every grace they will possess in life is supernaturally appointed to them by God. So we derive from that an understanding that each child in the womb is created as a one of a kind. Just like there's nobody like you, there's no one like that baby. A one of a kind, amazing and uniquely beautiful reflection of God's image. Every unborn child is made in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that every unborn child has a holy connection to God. It means that every unborn child bears a unique resemblance to God. It means that every unborn child has an eternal soul. It means that every unborn child has the dignity of being known by God. It means that every unborn child has a destiny according to God's purpose. Every unborn child possesses the essence of what it means to be human. He or she is made in the image of God. And every unborn child has the capacity, therefore, to know and enjoy God. Every child in the womb is his creation. Every child in the womb is valuable to him. And yes... Every child in the womb is crowned 
with glory and honor made in His almighty, glorious image. Now the world and the flesh and the devil hate this. They hate everything I've just said. The world, the flesh, and the devil hate God. Therefore, they despise His image. And they fight it. They argue with it. So in their rebellious assault against the Creator, the world, the flesh, and the devil assert with full confidence and full folly that there is no God making the unborn. There is no God who knows them or cares for them. There is no God forming the unborn child in the womb. There is no image of God to dignify humans above everything else in the cosmos. Because there's no God. And if there is a God, He doesn't see and He doesn't care. And God has His Jeremiah's, us, who say through tears, no, God created the heavens and the earth. He made mankind, all of us, including the unborn in His image and in His likeness. He's provided salvation for us, even in our rebellion, on the cross. He does care about the children. He's watching how we treat them. Everything that this nation and this world does is laid bare to the eyes of Him who sees and to whom we must give an account. And then one last point in this little section in Jeremiah's call. He says, I consecrated you from the womb and made you a prophet to the nations. I just want to point out that he's a prophet to the nations, not just Israel. So here you have this prophet of God talking to nations that don't even acknowledge God and telling them what God thinks. He prophesied to the Moabites, read the book of Jeremiah. Here's the word of the Lord to the Moabites. Here's the word of the Lord to the Amorites. Here's the word of the Lord to Egypt. Here's the word of the Lord to the Philistines. <laughs> to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, and others. So we're on solid ground biblically. I want to I assure you that we are on solid ground biblically when we, like Him, call people who don't even acknowledge Him to believe Him, to honor Him, to obey Him. And we know full well that some people will thank us forever for telling them about the living God. I, I'm old enough now where I have people coming to me and saying, thank you for telling me about Jesus. It's made all the difference in my life. Some people will thank us forever. And other people will hate us forever. Just like they did Jeremiah. It's nevertheless our duty to speak clearly about what God hates and affirm clearly what God loves. And affirm clearly what God loves. I think a lot of times pro-life people fail to do this. Let me give you an example. Most Planned Parenthood workers and their supporters want very much to help women caught in difficult situations. God loves that. 
Over 60% of women who come in for an abortion are alone and live below the poverty line. Planned Parenthood people and their supporters are concerned for her life. They're advocating for someone who's in a weak and in a distressed position. And that care and help that they offer and provide should be celebrated and supported by Christians everywhere. But because they do, in fact, care for women, they deceive themselves into believing that their mission is wholly benevolent, wholly humanitarian. What so many do not have the courage to face, to discuss, to debate, or acknowledge is the simple fact that alongside their genuine humanitarian work, we find the killing of little, little humans who bear the image of God. We need to say in no uncertain terms that humanitarian ends can never, ever justify the wanton taking of innocent human life, which God hates. So let's affirm what God loves. And let's not shrink from saying, speaking about what God hates. We must disagree firmly when they insist that killing the unborn is not the taking of human life, which is the argument. Dr. Jen Gunter wrote an article for the New Republic during the height of last year's controversy entitled, The Many Manipulations of the Planned Parenthood Attack Videos. In the article, she writes, these are not baby parts. Whether a woman has a miscarriage or an abortion, the tissue specimen is called products of, of conception. In utero, that is, during pregnancy, we use the term embryo from fertilization to 10 weeks gestation and fetus from 10 weeks to birth. The term baby is medically incorrect and it does not apply until birth. Calling the tissue baby parts is a calculated attempt to anthropomorphize an embryo or a fetus. Now that's a big word, anthropomorphize. What's that? Four cylinders, four syllables. <laughs> For those unfamiliar what it means, it simply means to assign human attributes to something which is not human. That's what anthropomorphize means. She's saying you're assigning human attributes to something which is not human. The article insists that you were only legitimately anthropomorphized or humanized at the moment of your birth. Prior to that, you were not a baby. You were not a child. And you were certainly not a human person. If that seems way too silly, it is. We say, when a cat gets pregnant, we say she's pregnant with kittens. When dogs get pregnant, we say, my dog's having puppies. And when people get pregnant, we say she's pregnant with a baby. There's no manipulation in using those words. Saying kittens or puppies or babies is not a bizarre manipulation. 
The manipulation is on the side of those who seek to use medical terminology to dehumanize little people in the womb, to deny them the rights they deserve as those who are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. This is nothing more than deadly word games, but the author, the author must admit that it's word games. The author must admit, otherwise, if they don't play those word games, that abortion involves the painful dismembering and death of fellow members of the human race. That's exactly where the abortion movement is headed. Increasingly, they realize that they've lost the argument regarding the humanity of the unborn human. It's very difficult to argue that that child in the womb is not a human being. That's, a, that's hard to argue. So they realize they're losing that, that argument badly. It's contrary to biological science, it's contrary to common sense, it's contrary to reason, and they've increasingly begun to say, okay, 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 it's human. Before he preached on this topic, Pastor Scott Sauls, a senior minister of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, sat down with a local abortion provider and others in order to hear directly from people with differing perspectives. The abortion provider he sat with confessed in the course of the conversation that he feels sick to his stomach every time he performs an abortion. He said that he believes human life begins at the moment of conception and he believes that to terminate a pregnancy is to terminate a human life. And he frankly admitted to this pastor that as long as he provides abortion, he must on some level live in a world of moral inconsistency. So some in the abortion movement admit that we're killing children and they're uncomfortable with the moral inconsistency. But others have hardened their hearts. Mary Elizabeth Williams, who is pro-choice, wrote an article for Salon that is chillingly entitled, So What If Abortion Ends Life? So what? In the article, she acknowledges that a child in the womb is a human life. Then she blames a complicated reality for a violation of her own progressive values of human equality. Now listen to this. She's all for equality, so she feels a tension here. She feels an inconsistency. Listen to how she resolves it. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about. Yet, a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside her. Always. But listen, God does not stamp non-autonomous entity on the unborn child. He stamps His own beautiful image on that child. God does not say that degrees of autonomy or viability make a human a human. 
He does not say that it's okay to kill people who are less than fully autonomous. God does not say that more developed humans have greater value than less developed ones and that it's okay to kill the less developed. God does not say that large humans are more human than small ones and that it's okay to kill the small ones. God does not say that a change in location makes a person a human being and that it's therefore okay to kill a baby any time before the child makes that eight-inch journey from the womb to the world. What God does say is that all humans are made in His image and likeness and that all human life, all human life must be protected and treated with dignity and respect. So how do we process the modern catastrophe of abortion? In the period from 2010 to 2014, worldwide, now, now let this hit you, 25% of all pregnancies ended in abortion. According to the World Health Organization, every year in the world, there are an estimated 40 to 50 million abortions. That corresponds, on average, to approximately 125,000 abortions a day, which corresponds, on average, to 5,206 abortions every hour. 5,000. 200 every hour worldwide. How, how do we process that? Well, we do it like Jeremiah did. We don't put it out of our minds. We allow it to affect us. We say with him, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold on me. Oh, that my head were waters, and that my eyes were a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Is there no physician among us? Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no medicine to cure the sin sickness of my people? Is there no one who can heal this ravaging disease? Well, you and I know that there is. There is a balm in Gilead. What's his name? Jesus. I'd like to play in closing a video of a traditional African-American song first written and sung some 200 years ago by people who themselves were victims of our world's sin sickness. And those wonderful theologians who wrote this song having read Jeremiah and having heard his rhetorical question and his despair, is there no bomb in Gilead, replied in song as they sang, perhaps in the cotton fields, there is a bomb in Gilead. There is a bomb 
in Gilead. There is a balm to make the wounded whole. There is a balm to heal the sin-sick soul. They knew and we know that that balm is Jesus, our Savior. That balm is His forgiveness and His mercy. Our nation needs that balm today. Our world needs that balm today. And all of us in that room need that medicine. I know for sure that that there are people in this room for whom abortion is part of your life. Maybe you or your girlfriend had an abortion. Maybe you urged a friend or a loved one to have an abortion. I, I love this song that we're about to listen to because it tells you in your sorrow and in your grief and in your repentance that there is a balm in Gilead that will cleanse away that sin. Oh, hallelujah. All my sins away. There is a balm that can make you whole again. Maybe you recently suffered a devastating miscarriage and your heart is broken. You're thinking of your child. I love this song because it tells you that there's a bomb in Gilead to heal your broken and wounded heart. Maybe you feel like your work for the unborn is in vain. I like this song. Maybe you've spent, maybe you've spent your whole adult life advocating for the unborn. You're saying, Bill, my hair's almost as white as yours. I've been doing this since, since I was in college. I like this song because one of the verses says that even though we're discouraged and tempted to think that our work is in vain, the Holy Spirit will revive our hearts again. He'll enable us to continue to labor for the innocent and give us strength and courage to speak the truth in love. Maybe this morning you feel helpless in the face of this this worldwide institutional evil. Maybe you feel helpless. Like, what can we do? I mean, this is just overwhelming. You don't know what to do or to say. And I like this song because it offers us clear direction. The lady who sings this verse says, maybe you're no leader like Peter or Paul. Like Maybe you're no world changer. But you can tell the love of Jesus and say He died for all. That's the solution. It's not just what happens with our laws when seven out of ten favor this. We need, we need the love of Jesus spread abroad in people's hearts. I love the song. There is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Let's listen, and then I'll close in prayer. Let's watch.